together, which has the same topic as session one, so it's the same topic continued. What we were doing last time was defining what is a spirit, uh, which is, uh, as we saw, kind of hard to pin down, but uh, we have at least an operating definition. It's that part of a, a being, that part of a being which has a spirit that um, has to do with morality, that's the center of its morality. And <coughs> Sister Marshall came up to me after class and she said, I always thought that the spirit was the part of us that communicates with God. And I think that's correct. And I think we'll see more of that as we go on tonight and in, as we go into future studies. That I think also makes a reasonable operating definition. Uh, we're going to try to get our uh, hand around everything that we can know about spirits that is provided for us in scripture. And of course, if you go into secular literature, you're way out into the weeds because very quickly they'll take you into different people's opinions and philosophies and whatever else um, they can bring to bear on the subject that may or may not have any relevance to what we're talking about when we talk about spirits in the scripture. All right, so tonight it's more about spirits, and last time while we did definitions, tonight we're going to talk a little bit more in practical terms about places we see spirits in Scripture and what we learn about spirits from what we see. Let's begin with a prayer. Heavenly Father, as being created in your image and having been given spirits to connect with you, we pray, Father, that we'll be mindful of these spirits and that we will... Um, Commune, commune with you as we study and as we live from day to day. We ask your blessings on our study tonight so that we can understand more about ourselves, more about how to be pleasing to you, and more about how to connect with the spirits of other people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. The one thing that we learn about spirits from Scripture is that they don't have flesh and bones. That's not going to come as a great surprise to anybody here, but I remember having a debate with a Chinese guy one night about whether spirits have physical attributes. And he was quite well convinced that, uh, that I was just making all this up. And although he was something of a Bible student, uh, this is something that apparently he'd never delved into with any great depth. And... So it didn't take him long, I think, to realize from Scripture that it's true. And we see this laid out very clearly for us in Luke chapter 24 and verses 36 to 43. And this is after the resurrection of Jesus when he's with his disciples. And it says they were talking about these things and Jesus himself stood among them. This is a surprise to them. They weren't expecting Jesus to show up and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? So he's going to further demonstrate that he's not just a spirit by eating in front of them. And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Okay, so trying to demonstrate very clearly that if he were a ghost, he would not be eating fish in front of them 
and to convince them that because he, that he could show them his hands and his feet, solid matter, and because he appears to have flesh and bones that he couldn't just be an apparition of some sort or a ghost or a spirit. So contrast between spirit and flesh, flesh has fleshly dimensions, spirits apparently do not, and Jesus demonstrates this for them here, all right? Spirits may accommodatively assume physical attributes. And I'm gonna take you through several examples of this, but you can probably think of some of them already. Um, angels, spirit beings, do we all agree from scripture? Assume various recognizable forms. Tell me one form that angels take on. Human. Human form. More often than any other probably in scripture, they appear as men, oftentimes arrayed in white, right? And there was one time at least when they appeared as men to Abraham and he couldn't tell the difference between them and other men because uh, he just thought they were travelers and it took him a while to catch on that these were representatives of God. All right, some other forms that angels took on in scripture? Of course, there are different classifications of, I guess we call them angels in scripture. Uh, the cherubim and seraphim described as having various forms, some of them terrible, some of them animal-like, some of them winged. Um, we usually think of angels all the same, right? We think of them as white with wings. They always fly around and, well, like Lauren says, you also have this image of chubby babies with wings. That's probably not what they looked like. Angels were oftentimes terrifying in their appearance. All right. How about, here's Acts chapter 1 and verse, verses 10 and 11. They just witnessed the ascension of Jesus back to heaven. And while they were still gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood, them, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Now, we're not told specifically that these were angels unless they were just random guys dressed in white robes, uh, I think most people assume that they were. The Spirit of God appeared in the form of a dove. And I use the word accommodatively here because why would the Spirit of God appear as anything? Why would this, pardon? All right, so how could you see him? If, you, if spirits don't have physical dimensions, how could you actually witness the presence of a spirit unless he accommodated you by taking on the form of something that you could recognize? And it's interesting, isn't it, that he chose here to, to appear as a dove. What's another way the spirit of God has decided to appear at another time in history? Burning bush. Okay, well... Uh, there's some question as to whether that's the, the Holy Spirit or whether it's God the Father. But there was a, one appearance of God in some form in a burning bush to Moses. What's another? How about in Acts chapter 4? Tongues of fire. Okay. Cloven tongues as of fire that set upon each of them. And they, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay. And the sound of the room was like what? A rushing mighty wind. 
we also have this imagery in the scripture of the spirit as an anointing, as anointing oil. And so John, in 1 John, said to the Christians there, you have an anointing from the Holy One. Uh, in other words, the spirit of God has come upon you, and so you're not behind these people who say they know something or have some sort of special revelation or special enlightenment. You're just the same as them because you have been anointed by the Holy One. The judges in the Old Testament were anointed men, and they were when they were anointed, the Spirit of God came upon them, and they led Israel and judged Israel as representatives of God from that time forward. So the Spirit has various manifestations, uh, the, the Spirit of God throughout Scripture, and it's interesting to see which uh, form he's taking on and for what reason in different places. Give some thought to why would the Spirit choose to take on the appearance of an anointing? Why would he choose to take on the appearance of a dove, say, as opposed to a rattlesnake? Why might he take on the, uh, <coughs> the appearance of a uh, divided tongue that would rest upon each of these people? And I think in each of those forms of appearance, there is a lesson being taught. So God is not just making himself seen by people, but he's making himself, making himself seen in a way that's instructive. Here we go. When Jesus was baptized, immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So actually resting on Jesus. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So symbolizing, dove is generally thought of as being a symb symbolic of peace and harmlessness, but it rests on Jesus. And then this voice further illuminates the people standing by by saying this dove is landing on him to designate him and set him apart from everybody else. In other words, he is, by the, by the spirit coming upon him, he is sanctified. He's set apart for a particular purpose. Cloud also. Pardon? He is seen in cloud too. Okay. There, there's a, there are a number of appearances of clouds, aren't there? There's a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire in the Old Testament. Again, what form of God that actually is. Some sort of a projection of the presence of God. Very good. So, we have also Satan making appearances in Scripture. First as what? A snake. A snake, okay. Maybe that's why the spirit didn't choose a rattlesnake. Um, Satan, the snake seems to represent Satan and um, probably an apt representation. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14, it says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So we have Satan using his appearance. Well, the spirit of God uses his appearance to instruct the spirit of Satan uses uh, his form to deceive, to beguile. And that shows a very clear distinction between the personages of the two, two <coughs> individuals we're talking about. And here's another example. Samuel was called up by the witch of Endor in 1 Samuel chapter 28. It's an interesting passage. Uh, if you'll recall, Saul goes to a medium and he wants to, wants to take advice from Samuel, and he's not getting anything from his prophets. 
So he does something that's both illegal, which according to his own law that he's supposed to enforce is illegal, but it's also immoral from God right from the very beginning. You're never supposed to go to a medium or necromancer or any of these other kinds of, of um, people who have some connection with the spirit world. But he goes to this witch and he asks him to call up Samuel and Samuel appears and the witch seems to be as shocked by it as everybody else is in the room. And she yells out to him, you, you're trying to fool me here. You're really Saul and you're gonna get me in trouble. And, and Saul says, don't worry about it. You're not gonna get in trouble. I need some advice here. And uh, Samuel seems to be pretty perturbed by the whole thing. Why did you bring me here? Okay, so there are many references in scripture to spirits taking on physical form so that they can be instructive to those about. So, I'm shifting the conversation now from talking about spirit beings and their appearances in scripture to talking about our spirits. Okay, now remember from the last class, unlike God and the spirits in the realm of the spirits, uh, who have their nature is what it is they're not in conflict with themselves man on the other hand is of dual nature he has flesh and spirit and those two sometimes go to battle with each other don't they so the spirit of man like his soul has something to do with the animation of the body or flesh and by the way those are two different Greek words as they are in English, body and flesh. Body has more to do with the entirety of the body and flesh more to do with the substance it's made of. But sometimes you'll see those two terms being used interchangeably. So here's a scripture from Luke chapter 8 and verse 54. And this is a case of a young girl who has died and Jesus, if you'll recall, comes into the room and he says, don't worry, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. But they all knew she was dead and they all laughed at him for having, they, and they mocked him for having said that she was only sleeping. I think that was a device that Jesus was using because he's gonna raise her from the dead and then who's gonna stand by and say, well, she wasn't really dead. Uh, they had just all laughed at him for saying she wasn't dead, okay? So he's gonna bring her back from the dead then it just shuts up everybody in the room because nobody can say that he didn't raise her from the dead. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, child arise and her spirit returned. And she got up at once and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. So once again, you have this eating as a demonstration. Now this really is, this is not just a ghost we're seeing, this is really a person and she has hunger and she needs to be fed. Spirit, like the soul, as we saw in our last class, the soul was imparted to man in Genesis chapter 2 uh, when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And here you have a spirit returning and having to do with her body being reanimated. I'm just roaring through these slides. What do you guys want to talk about? <laughs> Well, the spirit is it's not fleshy, it's not bone, but it still has to be fed. Okay, and how does the spirit get fed? Well, it's, it's fed from, from God. Okay. When, when you pray or you do things uh, in, in the name of God, 
for him. And Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth, mouth of God. So I think that's a clear illustration of the point that you're making, that spirits have their own kind of food, and you can feed them on junk food uh, and end up with, a, with an unhealthy spirit, or you can feed them on the word of God and on prayer and on uh, the other spiritual disciplines, which I assume we'll talk about at some point in this class, and strengthen your spirit. Okay, what else? Um, this, this is a little off topic, but it's where my mind went. Okay. So obviously this is showing the difference between spirit and the flesh, which is undoubtedly, but what, there was a, like a, a race or was it the Nephron or something that was on earth that people claimed that that was a half angel, half human. Mm -hmm. um, so what would you say there? Cause like if somebody like, like your Chinese friends, like, oh, they, they took on, they were human, they had flesh and yeah. bone. Um, how would you kind of like explain that? And also, is that even true? I don't know, <laughs> like I've, I've heard of that and I've read it, but like, I don't know if that's actually what those, that Nephrim is. Okay, the Nephilim, Nephilim are yeah. beings that existed before the flood. Uh, some some translations of the Bible read giants. The giants were in the earth. Um, nobody really knows what those are. There's a lot of speculation swirling around it. And as you can imagine, because there's some mention about the sons of God uh, mating the, with the daughters of men, that, that they might be some kind of a quasi-spiritual physical being. The, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took them as wives. And in those days, the giants were in the earth. Okay, that's what it says. And if you just take that at face value, you're left kind of scratching your head because it really doesn't explain itself. There's nothing inherent in the words. The word Nephilim rarely appears anywhere in literature. This is kind of a unique, unique instance. And so everything else that you hear about that is speculation and the speculation runs wild okay so there were these quasi fleshly spirit beings that were huge and that they were powerful over other people in the earth and that they developed kingdoms and you know you can you can uh, elaborate a really awesome story around that bottom line is first of all I don't buy into it for a minute some people really uh, <coughs> get upset with me when I tell them that. Um, I, I think there that it's more likely that the sons of God were people like Seth, who were spiritually minded people and followed after God. And the daughters of men were people who were not particularly spiritual minded. Amen. And we're getting now close to the time of Noah when the thought of man's heart was to do evil continually. And what that has to do with the time that the, the, the Nephilim were in the earth, the, the, whether they're mighty men or whether they're giants or whatever, don't know the answer to that. Don't really know how to handle that from a historical or scientific point of view because we just don't have any information about that. Um, people ask the question, well, are there giants in the fossil record? For, you know, if Adam and Eve died and were buried, what are the chances that they would leave fossils? And if they did, what are the chances we'd find them? <laughs> you know, probably pretty small. So I don't know how many of these beings there were. 
Uh, I, I don't know how prolific they were. Uh, so maybe someday we'll find something really large and we'll be able to draw some kind of a connection back to the Nephilim. I just don't know. Um, but I just think that the, the explanations about these half-human, half half-spirit beings is, is a little far-fetched, personally. Uh, good question, though. And, and I'm, I'm glad you're, you're, you said my mind went there. I'm glad your mind is going places. <laughs> if you were just following along without your mind going places, I, I wouldn't feel as good about the way the class is going. Anybody else? Where are your minds going? My mind went to 2 Kings 6. I've been trying to find it for a while. But, uh, when uh, Elisha, uh, the Syrians are coming and, and uh, his servant says, Alas, Master, what shall we do? And he, he prays that the Lord opens his eyes. And this is in verse 17. Uh, he opened his eyes and, he, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Okay. So... They're again talking about this other world that exists around us that we don't really understand, but it's there. Yeah, and uh, their eyes were opened to that world. So the, these uh, warriors took on enough of a physical form that they could be observed, but they were clearly otherworldly to the people who were observing them. And yeah, to your point about great you know, example. The, the way that the, these, the Spirit of God or the angels or whoever appeared is not coincidental, right? In this case, they're chariots because this is a military situation. It's a showing these people that God's there defending them. And there's another case in 2 Kings. I can't tell you the chapter it's in right now. Uh, we just got done talking about 2 Kings in the auditorium, so it's fresh on my mind, where... The Assyrians, not the Syrians that, that David was talking about, but the Assyrians came down to, to Judea to conquer it, and they were going to take over Jerusalem, kind of as the last, this is sort of Jerusalem's Alamo moment. Um, but God was determined at this point to preserve Judah, at least through this generation. And so at night, somehow there was a great slaughter of Assyrians, and the Assyrians ran home with their tails between their legs. And uh, there was very little explanation as to how all this happened. Now, um, the prophets, of course, the writer of the book of 2 Kings explained that this was God's army coming in and slaughtering the Assyrians. There is a historical record that happened that, that, uh, that's given in uh, uh, one of the Greek historians, um, a few centuries later after the events took place and the best explanation that he could come up with is that field mice had run into the camp and had chewed the handles off of all their swords and uh, left them confused and defenseless the next day so that the the Israelites came in and slaughtered them well the Israelites never claimed to have slaughtered anybody and the, don't you think the field mice explanation is a little far-fetched um, the king of Assyria had his own explanation for what happened and he said well I, I went down there and I had conquered all of all of uh, Judah and I had um, the king of Judah uh, surrounded and, and bound up like a bird in a cage didn't say why he didn't go ahead and kill him <laughs> didn't say why he didn't go ahead and take over Jerusalem just said I had him bound up like a bird in a cage but then what I just left so why did he just leave? 
You see, these kings had their own histories that sort of magnified what they wanted everybody to know. So what actually did happen there in around Judah? Well, presumably it was the same kind of spiritual army that we saw against the Syrians coming against the Assyrians as well and doing their work in secret this time. What else you got? That might be kind of... Okay. Yeah, go ahead, Seth. Uh, when you're thinking about going back to the plagues, and the last plague was the death of the firstborn, mm -hmm. is there... The story's not fresh on my mind, but there, is there not reference to an angel of death coming? Yes. yes. Would that not give it some kind of physical manifestation to be able to do that? I well, mean, there's certainly some contact between obviously there's, the spirit world and the humans if they're going to die from, from the hand of the death yeah. angel. Yeah. That's an interesting interaction between it is. the spirit and the flesh at that point with, yeah. that, with that plague. And it seems that this is often a function of angels. Uh, that they're, uh, and, and we will have a class on angels, too, on, the, on your schedule, by the way. Um, but this kind of uh, warfare fought on behalf of God is one of the common functions we see of them in Scripture. Jay, what did you want? That's kind of interesting that there's an exchange between God and Nebuchadnezzar right before Nebuchadnezzar is sent out into the, the field to, to act like an live like an animal. Um, how that exchange takes place, we don't know, but we know that Nebuchadnezzar takes on the form of an animal and lives like an animal until he learns that God is in control. Yeah. Was it seven because years? Nebuchadnezzar had been so arrogant about his Conquest. Yeah, he, he was talking about how look look at the wonderful kingdom that I have built. And right. he wasn't giving God any of the credit for it. But obviously, there's to me there's a there's a spirit connection there with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know how to describe it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't he doesn't describe it. But there's no prophet involved. Yeah. So. This is exactly what we'd like to do as we go through this class. We begin to see the spiritual connections, not only between God and the people who lived in the Bible, but also to see the spiritual connections between God and us and God and those people around us. And when we have begun to do that, we have developed the next level of spiritual maturity, haven't we? When we begin to see the working out of the plans of God in our lives and the will of God in our lives, whether it helps us personally or whether it hurts us personally. You know, God has allowed bad things to happen to people before as one of the ways that he works out his plan and his will. It doesn't mean that every time something bad happens to you, God is... is uh, is going to say, yeah, I did that in order to do this. No, that's not what I'm saying. But when we begin to see the playing out of the will of God and the actions of God in our own lives and those around us, I think that takes us to another level of spiritual maturity. So we want to be able to develop the ability to do that readily, to see how God is working out his plans in our lives. Okay? 
let me just insert the entire book of Ecclesiastes right here, mm -hmm. uh, where Solomon goes on this grand exploration, and the, and the exploration really seems to be, is God involved in any of this? Remember, he says, this and that and the other, I did this and I tried that and I did something else, and you know what, it just seemed like chasing after wind. <laughs> but by the time he comes to the end of all this, he says the only way to make sense of all this, this is the end of the matter, all has been said. What did he say? Fear God and keep his commandments because this is the entirety of man. So he says the only way, finally, I make sense out of all this is to connect it back to God and to understand that God is, even though it seems that things are, are futile, seems that things are not going the way they should, that God is still in control and that, that God uh, has his own view and his own plans for all of this, what seems to be chaos. Uh, and I think that's advice that he's giving us. All right, let's move on and talk about our spirits. Our spirits, our spirit animates our body. And it may be limited by the body with which it is connected. And it may be at odds with the flesh. Agreed? Let's look at a couple scriptures. Here's Jesus in the garden with his disciples the night he was betrayed to be crucified. He said to them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He knew that they were tired. They're fighting against their flesh. He said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So here, what the spirit would otherwise do, what it wants to do, it wants to stay awake and pray with him as Jesus requested. Jesus is praying. He wants them to be back here watching and praying. And what does he come back and find them doing? Sleeping. That's right. And he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, the, the spirit here is limited or delimited by the weakness of the flesh. And I think we find this to be true in many aspects of our lives, don't we? And I think that's kind of what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 7 when he talks about this struggle that's going on within him. He says, this is what I want to do in my spirit. I want to do this, but my flesh wants to do that. And he says, so I do what I don't want to do. And that's frustrating to him. And so I insert Romans chapter 7 here as a reference to the spirit at odds with the flesh. And we will, again, spend quite a bit of time in Romans chapter 7 and 8 because those are critical passages in our discussion of what the spirit, the spirit of God, does with us and for us and how it interacts with our spirit. Ultimately, spirits can be controlled by the will of the person. Take time to think about this hard. Ultimately, our spirit can be controlled by our will. If that were not true, then how could God command us to do anything? How could he require any kind of behavior out of us if we couldn't harness our spirit and cause it to do what we want it to do? 
You can quench the spirit real easy. Okay. But it's not following God's word. Okay. All right, we can quench the spirit. Here's a biblical example of what I'm talking about here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 30 through 32, this is the passage, a passage that's talking about spiritual gifts. And as you know, there was a lot of infighting in Corinth over who had the greatest gifts and their interest in showing themselves superior through the exercise of these spiritual gifts. And so their assemblies were chaotic. We had five different people who spoke different languages speaking at the same time and apparently trying to get louder than each other. Some of them saying, well, you're just a prophet, but I can speak in a foreign language, and that just somehow makes me better than you. And so I ought to be held up here, and, and you ought to be down here somewhere. And you don't have any spiritual gifts at all, as far as I can tell. Well, Paul addresses that by a lot of different ways. But one of the ways he tells them to control themselves, he says... If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. You don't want to have two people talking at the same time. For you can, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Now, you get the idea from the broader religious world that if you got the spirit then you're not responsible for anything that happens next. And that chaotic assemblies are okay because the Spirit's taken over, right? Well, that was not the way it was going to be among the Corinthians as far as Paul was concerned. He said, if you've got a revelation from the Spirit, keep a lid on it until somebody else is done talking, and then you talk, and the other one should be silent. And he gives them a series of rules to follow. How could you follow rules if the Spirit had just utterly taken over and taken control of you? Paul says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You can control this. So this negates any idea, any idea that we might have. Did I, did I say anything to Siri? I mean, honestly. <laughs> okay. So ultimately, spirits can be controlled by the will of the person. Our physical well-being is not at all indicative of spiritual strength, and maybe even inverse to it. That is, when our spirit is strong, our flesh is weak. When our flesh is strong, our spirit is weak. That can happen. Um, what's an example of that? You remember in Scripture? 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, and this is Paul's thorn in the flesh. He was given this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him, so that he would not be exalted above measure because of this special revelation that he had received from on high. And so he appealed to the Lord three times that this thorn in the flesh would be removed from him, and the Lord's answer was no. Basically, the answer was no. I'm not going to take it away. And he gives him a couple reasons. He says, first of all, my grace is sufficient for you. I've given you everything you need, and that's enough. And then, my power is made perfect in weakness. What kind of power is he talking about there? 
Pardon? I would say his word. The, okay, the, the word of God was definitely in Paul, but what power is being made perfect through Paul's weakness? I'm going to argue that it's his spiritual strength. I see. That he was spiritually strong when he was physically in pretty bad shape. And Paul had lots of reasons to be in bad shape, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Five uh, times I received 40 stripes, save one. 200 stripes he had on his back, not counting the rods. <clears throat> Thrice he was beaten with rods. That doesn't count the times he was taken out and left for dead after having been stoned. Um, talked about a night and a day he spent having been uh, in the deep, having been shipwrecked. Uh, Paul had a rough life and was apparently had some of the physical manifestations of having lived a rough life. And through all of that, he was able to glorify God in his messed up body. Now, if you can glorify God in a healthy body, that's one thing. Big deal, right? I mean, it's like Satan said about Job, you, you've built a hedge around him. Everything's gone his way so far. Of course he's going to obey you. But then when it's all gone, if you can still glorify God in this messed up, beat up, broken down old body, then that brings a different kind of glory to God, doesn't it? You know, uh, I'm going to tell you a little something. Mom, Ten years ago, my mom had an aorta aneurysm dissension, and she's been in a wheelchair ever since. And she is the most happiest person, most content person. And if I'm fussing up and whining about something, and she goes, now the Apostle Paul says you, for you to be content in every situation you're in. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I'm like, Mom, I'm getting really tired of you saying this. <laughs> but, you know, she's... But she's, she had earned the right to say that. She's so she? amazing. I mean, amazing. Yeah, that's great. You know, it is a great testimony when somebody can be going through really hard times and still be glorifying God through the hard times. And that's really what demonstrates the glory of God more so than if you glorify him when you're well. Yes. I think it's a pattern too that we see where God uses weak people or weak situations to accomplish his will for his glory so that those people can't claim it for themselves. I mean, I think about when he whittled down the army to just, I think it was 300 men um, who were going up against thousands and they still defeated um, their enemies and so they couldn't claim it was by their own strength at that point just like we can't when we have weakness in our flesh. Like the time he saved the spies and the entire Israeli army by harlot, right? And there are just so many examples of that in scripture. This ragtag group of 300 that went out against the Midianites who got down on their knees and lapped up water like a dog. <laughs> Kyle? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And uh, a lot of those people, all here from realize that for us as well, we can't really receive God's sufficient grace until we realize that we ourselves are inefficient without it. It's not until we realize that we are lacking something, that we aren't strong enough to take care of the thorn in the flesh. I think a lot of times we can have a mindset that um, something is so hard that we want it removed from us. 
but you know, you have a burden, that's only one way of removing the burden. The other option is you can get stronger and be able to shoulder it better. And that's really what the sufficient grace is, is that I'm going to make you stronger, not so that I'm gonna take it away from you and you'll get relief that way, but by growing to be able to, you know, shoulder it better, to be able to deal with it more, leaning on me is how you're going to, uh, and not only will you be able to carry it better, but you're going to be stronger for it as well. You're going to come out the other side a better person. Yeah, our tendency is, is to want to to uh, say that we're going to glorify God through the Father. Yeah. But, but that has never been the case, has it? That's not true. It's always been through humility and through brokenness that God is glorified, not through a person's own uh, building up of his own ego. Who else had a hand up? So, our connection with God is in the Spirit, and we're going to have an entire class on this, but I thought it would be worth mentioning right now. And this goes back to Sister Valley's point. <coughs> and this is from John 4, 23 and 24, as you might have anticipated. But the hour is coming, Jesus says, to the woman at the well, Jacob's well, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, and in truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him such people to worship him he's not seeking people to worship him in this way he's seeking such people to worship he's looking for spiritual people who will worship him in spirit and in truth people have pigeonholed this passage into giving it an explanation in order to satisfy some kind of an argument think about what he's saying here he says, the people who worship me are going to worship me spiritually, connecting their spirit with my spirit. I'm a spirit. If you're going to worship me, it has to be in spirit, spirit to spirit, and truly. It's not going to be put on. It's not going to be artificial. It's not going to be superficial. It's going to be spirit to spirit, and it's going to be true. It's going to be genuine. This is the real article. Why? Because spirits are connecting with spirits. That's how we want to see our connection with God going forward. It's real. It's from the inside out. It's heart to heart. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him spiritually and truly. What else you want to say? Now you realize the, these two classes were introduction. Talked a little bit about everything we're gonna talk about all trimester. Uh, but I hope I've given you a taste of, of good things to come and that we can use this as a springboard so that we can be properly focused as we go into the, the, the remainder of the sessions. We can be thinking of spirits as a, rea a reality. We can be talking about them with understanding about what they are and how they connect to God who is a spirit. And that we can learn more about ourselves and how to connect with the spirits of other people. That's a challenge and it's a challenge that we have to meet every day. And that's another point that we're gonna be making as we go along is that spiritual life, the person who's spiritually focused is not somebody who says, okay, gotta get to church every Sunday although a spiritually-minded person might do that. That's not the point of the thing, is it? A spiritually-minded person
person is the person who's thinking about God and his spirit and his connection with other people's spirit every day. Every day. And even when he's doing things that are not necessarily anyhow in, in any other way related to what happens here at the building. What happens here at the building is wonderful. It's spirits connecting with other spirits to connect with God, right? That's wonderful, but it's only meaningful if those individuals have a spiritual relationship with God throughout the week. Otherwise, it's merely superficial. It's merely going through the motions. It's singing another song. It's praying another prayer without ever having any impact on who we are as a person or having impact on our connection with God or with one another in the spirit. Thank you for your kind attention. See you Sunday.